Well, if you have ever taken a stab at gardening, it can be quite challenging. Everyone wants to have that elusive green thumb. Most people find out they have a brown thumb. It can be difficult to keep plants alive from houseplants to garden veggies. I mean, they, they have one job. It's to grow. Now, how hard can it be? Just stay green and grow. But it doesn't always work out that way. It can be extremely frustrating. But you can't really blame the plant. I mean, is the plant doing something wrong? Plants, they're designed to grow. God made them to grow. They'll do that by their nature. But for plants to grow as God designed them, they do need one thing from you if you're their caretaker, and that is resources. They need the right amount of food, air, water, and sunlight. They need to be supplied with the building blocks of growth, and then they will do what they were designed to do. Automatically, they will grow. But if you deprive them of these resources, don't expect them to grow. Expect them to decay, to suffer. This picture is not altogether unlike how Christians grow. I think we're onto something here because it was Jesus first who used this type of planting analogy to depict spiritual growth in the Christian life. Christ taught in John 15, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He has joined us to himself so that we might bear fruit. He wants to see us grow, to put away sin from our lives, to bear the fruit of righteousness. And coming to salvation, we will grow per our new nature. So we will just grow. But we too still need the right resources. As with all living things, we need energy for growth. Yet Jesus supplies this as well. As we abide in him, the Holy Spirit fills us with all that power, all the resources we need to grow. When Christians don't grow, when they stumble and get entangled in sin, it's not like they can blame God. The Savior has richly and fully supplied to us the power we need for spiritual growth through the Spirit he has made to dwell within us. And the question then we have to ask ourselves is, are we taking advantage of, partaking of the Spirit's power? We have been given a vital role to play in our spiritual growth, namely to eat, to drink, to avail ourselves of all the spiritual resources given to us. And as we've been learning in this study, we we don't feed ourselves with our mouths, but uh, our minds. We, We put ourselves in the path of the Spirit's power when we renew our minds according to the channels given to us. This is how we abide in Christ. This is how we walk by the Spirit. This is how we overcome the flesh. This is how we win the war against sin. That has been our subject matter in this Bible study series for many weeks now, winning the war against sin. Because of sin, we're all in a war. Now, of course, before salvation, we weren't warring against sin. We were on sin's side, warring against God. All sin is a rebellion against the Creator. That's a losing war, but we were blind. We were enslaved. But God, in his mercy, because of his love for us, sent Christ to die in our place, pay for our sins, grant us his righteousness. And in so doing, as we come to faith, we're given new hearts. We're transferred to his side. In a word, we are saved. And coming to salvation, though, that's when, in a sense, our own personal war against our remaining sin begins. Jesus paid it all. He made complete atonement, fully justifies us by faith. He's the only victor in this war against sin. But we're not glorified yet. We're not free from sin's presence. We're new in nature, but old in body. The sinful flesh remains with its sinful lusts and desires. And as often as we give in to them, we we continue to yield sinful deeds. This is a huge inconsistency in the lives of believers. I mean, here we are. We've been transferred to Christ's side. We've been made his friends, his allies, But we still find ourselves from time to time rebelling against him, fighting against him, our new commanding officer. Thankfully, his mercy is new every morning and he restores us. But but the true believer doesn't want to live in this way. And the Lord has commanded us to be sanctified, to put off remaining sin, to put on Christ. How do you do that? What does that actually look like? It's been our objective to discover that, especially these past few weeks. And last week, finally, we arrived at that battle plan. We learned that the key to spiritual growth is Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the desires of the flesh. If you follow the Spirit's leading, you will be led into righteous living. How does the Spirit lead us and change us? We've learned he works to 
change and reshape our desires within us, the desires of our new heart. It does not force us to obey, but changes what we find desirable, such that we now want to obey God out of a willing heart. We come to love righteousness and recoil from sin. We also learn that the Spirit does this work within us effectively as we renew our minds. We're not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of the mind, Romans 12, or yeah, Romans 12, 2. And this, this is our active, ongoing, daily part. No farmer can make his crops grow. He can't force the seed to germinate for them to sprout through, shoot out leaves, bear fruit. He has no power to bring any of that about. All that growth will come by nature, by the nature God has designed and programmed. The plant will do what it's designed to do. Nevertheless, no one would ever say that the labor of the farmer is worthless. He weeds and waters and fertilizes, all to make sure that his plants have all the resources they need to do what they were designed to do, and that is grow. He does not labor in vain. And it is the same with us now. We are meant to fill ourselves with all the spiritual resources given to us to grow. This changes our thinking, which changes our wanting, which changes our doing. And that's how you change. Now, time doesn't afford us any more of a recap than that. If if this happens to be your first time joining us tonight, you probably want to catch up online. But that being said, for tonight, we've returned to finish learning how practically we access the Spirit's power, that we might be renewed in the spirit of our mind, Ephesians 4.23. We left off with with a picture of a large river fed by four tributaries, and the river is the Spirit's unlimited power, which is at work within you to renew your desires. Your job is to place yourself in this river, which is fed by these four tributaries, and then you will naturally be changed and worked on as the Spirit fills you. With this in mind, we're aiming to discover four ways to renew your mind and be spirit-led. Trying to be now as practical as we can be, four ways you need to renew your mind that you are spirit-filled, spirit-led. And practically, this is your part in how you change, grow, and win the war against sin. Last week, we took a deeper dive into the first two primary channels. Now it'd be the word and prayer. The word and prayer. And Again, we don't have time to rehash these now either. Suffice it to say, these are the main means of renewing the mind. Uh, Every believer needs to be devoted to the word and prayer. That the word and the mind of Christ might richly dwell within us. God has put his power in his word, the same word that the spirit inspired. And as you feast on that word, the spirit will illuminate to your minds and work on you on the inside and change your desires. It's why we're, we're called to 1 Peter 2, verse 2, long for the pure milk of the word of God so that by it we may grow with respect to salvation. And all the while, as we fervently pray for spiritual growth, God answers. If you do not ask, you do not receive. But as you plead, he promises to send mercy and grace to help in a time of need. So needless to say, the word and prayer are like our right hand and our left when it comes to seeking the Lord, renewing our mind. But now we want to cover, uh, continue on, carry on, and uncover the third and the fourth means of renewing your mind that you might be spirit-filled and spirit-led. So without further ado, let's do that now. We're going to carry on with number three, and this would be the church. The church. I know that God's word and prayer get a lot of attention, rightly so, but I think a huge sleeper as a means of spiritual growth is the church. And by the church, We're talking about a healthy, biblical, local body of believers. It was God's design, not man's, that disciples of Christ would be knit together into local bodies. And one of the main purposes behind this design decision was our spiritual growth in Christ-likeness. This is Ephesians 4. You can turn there if you want to follow along. We'll be looking at many passages tonight. Ephesians 4 to start with. It reminds us how God gave spiritual leaders to the church. Why? For the equipping of the saints. To what end? It says to the building up of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4.12. Together we are meant to grow up into a mature man, the fullness of Christ. And as we serve one another, the whole body grows in all of its members. Moreover, he continues, verse 14 of Ephesians 4. 
says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So in this analogy, Paul argues that the body causes the growth of the body. The body, in a sense, builds up itself. How does this work? Well, as all the individual body parts function, they live, they serve one another. As they speak the truth in love to one another, they are edifying, literally building up one another. And the net result, as each individual grows, is that the body grows. But you'll notice that this mutual growth seems to be a function of truth. It says we grow up into Christ, verse 15, as we speak the truth in love to one another. Last week, we pointed out how fundamentally we're in a truth war, this war against sin. What type of war is it? Ultimately, it's, it's a truth war. We're fighting against lies, the lies of the devil, the flesh, and the world. Behind every sin is some deception. But verse 14, we're no longer to be tossed around by deception. Rather, in the church, we're meant to find allies, others who will speak the truth in love to us, to one another mutually, that we might be built up. By the truth, we work to renew the minds of of one another so as to grow up. It's not without coincidence that immediately following this passage, Paul tells us how not to walk, verse 17, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. No longer. How? In the futility of their mind, darkened in understanding. And he goes on. We don't walk that way any longer because we are no longer that way. We're no longer futile and dark in mind. We're new in Christ. We are, verse 22, laying aside the old self. Verse 24, putting on the new self. All the while, verse 23, being renewed in the spirit of our minds. And it's also not without coincidence that the very first application Paul gives out of this teaching has to do with what? The truth, verse 25. He says, therefore... Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The church primarily is a place of spiritual growth because the church should be a place of speaking the truth. It's a place where lies should no longer reign, but the truth reigns and pervades. At least it should be. Only when all the members are working, serving, and speaking will the body build up itself in love. In the Spirit's power. And clearly, though, you can already see how important the church body is to spiritual growth. So, what do you think is going to happen if you take a believer and separate him or her from the body? What happens to a body part severed from the body? Certainly not growth. The Lord did not design for us to grow separately, but together, intertwined. We often think of sheep, biblical picture of us in the church. Sheep naturally are quite defenseless. Literally, I don't think they have any natural defense. They have the opposite of camouflage. I mean, being white, they're pretty much like a neon side against a green hillside saying like, you know, come and get me. They're slow. They're dumb. They're weak. I guess kind of their only natural defense is just being in a herd. There's a type of strength in numbers. They still need a shepherd's protection, but One thing is for sure, if a sheep wanders away from the herd, it's it's easy picking. It's easy prey for any type of threat. And sometimes you get a sheep who thinks it's too good for the herd, can't find a herd that's good enough, doesn't like the praise music of that herd, finds that herd's preaching is too long. So this sheep just goes his own way, does his own thing. That's when he becomes very easy picking for the evil one. This could be our immorality, or this, this could just be a type of deep-seated spiritual pride. But he's invited sin to form a stronghold in his heart. I would not expect that sheep to grow up into Christ very much, but to slowly decline, if not fall away. Now, I really want us to get to two key passages in Hebrews, so let's turn there. We can't delay. Hebrews 3, to start with. 
Because there's a pair of passages in Hebrews that further clarify the role of the church as a means of mind renewal and spiritual growth. So go to Hebrews 3 to begin with. I'm going to read there for the sake of time. Get started. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. You can keep turning there. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. So the author says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as, as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a call not to fall away in unbelief like wilderness Israel did. How can we manage that? There are strong forces within, without, seeking to pull us away from God. And so he tells us you have to watch over your heart. Take care that there not be found in you an evil, unbelieving heart. But the next verse shows us how important it is that we recruit others in that pursuit. Because every one of us can have a blind spot or a moment of weakness. And what then? So he says in verse 13, therefore, we must encourage one another. And notice he doesn't say encourage yourself. He says encourage one another. Encourage is the word parakaleo, which literally means to come alongside of someone else to help them, to come alongside, to help, to encourage one another. This just so happens to be precisely what the Holy Spirit does for us, by the way, which is why the Spirit is sometimes called the paraclete. It's from the noun form of parakaleo. He's the helper. He's the comforter, the encourager. It's all the same word. That's what he does for us. Here, we're being told to do that for one another. How often? How about every day? And that's what he means by so long as it, as it is called today. Every day in this age. Why? Why should we do this? He says, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. First, this applies to all of us. We can't leave any believer behind. We can't accept anyone being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, at least as so long as it depends on us. We, we don't want to allow any believer to be deceived and snatched by the wolves. And look, the enemy is deceitful. Sin is incredibly deceitful. I wonder if you've found that out yet, just with your own sin. We have to contend with temptations within and without, which will employ every means possible to lure us away from our first love. We've learned already all too well that the lusts of your own flesh, they're very real. They are still alive and well, hopefully still you know, dying and being put to death, but they're there. And if they're strong in you, if you've been feeding them and they're strong, and that means temptation will be a, a very big battle for you. And sometimes you're just going to be weak. You will be weak. You're too weak to resist. There will be times when, likely, you're not watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. You'll be weak. You'll be like a boxer who's been phased. Just one more hit is going to knock you out, knock you to the floor. You can no longer effectively defend yourself. So at that point, you need someone to jump in the ring, stand in front of you, defend you, help you. You need some help. That is what is behind this encouragement or exhortation. When you think about it, though, practically, this, this too takes the form of speaking truth to one another. How else do we encourage one another not to be deceived by sin, but by speaking truth to one another? I mean, we can't physically control one another. We're never told to. But use the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith to help others, to bolster them, to stand firm against sin and temptation. Speak the truth in love. Rebuke any ongoing sin. Restore in a spirit of gentleness. Help them find the way of escape. We must do this for one another because the stakes are high. If you don't, he says, you, your fellow believer risks being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or maybe you're the one in danger of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You don't want to go there. This hardening doesn't happen overnight. It happens by inches. This is how deceitfulness works, like boiling the frog. You're deceived by sin to make, to make little compromises to your holiness. You give in to the lust of your flesh just a little here. Just a little there. Just a little. But over time you find you're just one more decision away from the edge of the cliff. 
why didn't you stop yourself? How could you let yourself get that far with your sin? The answer is, you were weak. You were not walking by the Spirit. You were not renewing your mind as you should. But another question we have to ask is, okay, you were weak, but why didn't anyone else get involved to come alongside you and help you? Where was someone else, another believer, to encourage you that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Where were they? All we can say to this is that we better be the type of church, the type of believers who are ready and willing to do that. At the same time, though, a huge factor is how some people isolate themselves from the church. They keep the church at arm's length. Why wasn't anyone in King David's life when he was up there on the roof, when kings go out to war, looking and lusting? It seems to be that he had isolated himself. And many people do the same thing. They avoid the church. They avoid meaningful relationships. Sadly, that, that's often already a sign that that person is being deceived and being hardened as we speak. And it's typically just a matter of time before sin trips them up. The one who stays away from the local church for long risks spiritual catastrophe. But don't you think it's the height of pride to think you can stand firm on your own when the Lord's design says otherwise? His battle plan and blueprint says otherwise. You're going to go against that. That seems pretty arrogant and haughty. But this is why we need one another. We need one another to minister the word and prayer to us. And sometimes you're going to be weak. You need the church's help. Other times you will be strong. Someone else will need your help. Well, when that day comes, whichever way, will you be found? Will you be in the church, part of a church? This kind of dovetails with another passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 10. 23 through 25, a verse we, I trust, know well, but let's read it again. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. This is where he's getting into a lot of the, the, the big application to his whole letter, his whole epistle in Hebrews, which is like a written sermon. And some big picture applications, verses 23 through 25, Hebrews 10. He says, let us, corporately, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, this passage, the author is addressing some of the big picture applications of his teaching so far. But in all, we, we need to hold fast the faith, not fall back, not fall into error, not fall, and for some of the context, not fall back to dead Judaism. But we need help to do that. In whatever case, we need to be constantly stimulating one another to love and good deeds. We need to be running together, helping one another, sometimes setting pace for one another, propping up one another, even carrying one another. But all this can't happen if you forsake the assembly. It's kind of like a group project. If, you, if you're absent, you suffer, and the whole group suffers as well. It's a lose-lose when you are absent. So don't make this your habit to be not around the body, not involved with the body. Once again, it says to encourage one another. Same word, perikaleo. And he says, all the more as you see the day drawing near, as, as the, the days grow darker, all the more encourage one another. This is so important. The author has in mind sin here. We're talking high-handed, willful rebellion of someone who falls away per the next verse, per the context of serious, egregious sin. We all need allies in our spiritual lives to help us make sure we never fall away. We never go that far. The Lord protects and preserves us. He often uses means, and one of his means is the church. He's given you the means to endure, and part of that is the church. I think we've said enough to establish that the church is a major channel of the Spirit's grace and power and a means by which we renew our minds. If you want practical implementation, it it should be rather obvious at this point. Commit to a church. Seriously commit. Dive in, plug in, get involved, be there. 
as often as the doors are open, show up. Get into a small group or any type of fellowship group. Seek out and pursue deeper, meaningful relationships. Everyone needs a handful of allies around them who they can generally run the race with at a, at a really personal level. Don't wait and don't make excuses. All the excuses you've ever given for missing church, for just falling away from the local church for however long, I'm going to take it that all those excuses came from the flesh and not the spirit. So don't listen to them. Commit to a local body. Now we have to add, this needs to be a faithful, biblical, healthy local body. Not a perfect local body. There is no such thing, but like a faithful, biblical, healthy local body. Just being in the presence of other believers is not really what we're talking about here. The value comes when a group of believers are intentionally living out their faith together, speaking truth to one another, edifying one another, confronting one another, and so on. Just look at all the one another's of scripture. It's not enough that a bunch of Christians are in the same space. Do you see all, all of the one another's going on in a church? That's the local body you want to be a part of. We're talking about loving one another, instructing, serving, teaching, admonishing, encouraging, edifying, helping one another, bearing the burdens of one another. And that list goes on and on. Find a faithful local church that practices these and, and you'll grow. That would be one of the means you need to immerse yourself in to grow. And with the church here, this is kind of an umbrella. We can add a few more benefits to committing to a local assembly of believers. I mean, for one, you, you get access to the sound preaching of God's word. And we covered that last week under the Bible, but that is a massive means of renewing your mind and putting yourself in the path of the Spirit's power, that the preaching of the word is so valuable in inflaming our new desires. So local church is a primary means by which you are under the preaching of the word. You also get edifying corporate praise. Praise music primarily has in mind glorifying God. But as you're singing rich biblical lyrics, it's another form of speaking truth to one another. It has a, a secondary effect, a subsidiary bonus effect of washing your mind with the truth. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Notice that at he says, you know, be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5, 17. Speaking to one another, Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Why does he say speaking to one another? I thought our praise is directed to God. Yet part of being Spirit-filled is will result in this. We will be edifying one another even with the, the content of these Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. There is immense mind-renewing value in biblical praise music. Let that fill your mind in the local church especially. And the local church assembly is also the primary outlet for the church's one ongoing ordinance, the Lord's Supper. As Paul stresses in 1 Corinthians 11, communion is essentially a corporate body activity. There's one bread, there's one cup to stress the oneness of this body for which Christ died. And we're meant to remember him together in some expression of a local body. And as we do so, as we fix our minds on gospel truth, our minds are again renewed. The Lord's Supper is intended to renew us. It's why he commanded us to remember him often until he returns. We could say even more about the value of the church, but I hope this suffices. You can probably see now why I didn't really want to squeeze this in the five minutes, the tail end of last week's lesson, because again, the word and prayer get all the attention, but don't sleep on the value of the local church when it comes to your spiritual growth. And hopefully this sets some of the record straight and at least uh, starts you down a path of seeing uh, the gift God has given us in the church, in a body of just faithful believers who are seeking him uh, humbly. There's so much power in a church. And I think a lot of you can attest that uh, your growth took off when you, in the seasons of your life that you were meaningfully engaged and involved in just a sound, faithful local church. It should match your experience as well. But we do need to move on and finish with one more essential channel of the Spirit's power in our lives to renew us. We don't have all the time in the world. So we've got to move on to number four. The fourth means of being renewed would be trials. Trials. This one might catch you a little off guard. Probably not what 
first came to your mind as a means by which the Spirit's power changes us. One of the ways the Spirit works to sanctify us. But if viewed with a biblical lens, trials can actually result in a major leap of spiritual growth. The Lord can use trials to help his people completely amputate some sins in their lives. Few things can actually be as effective in producing holiness as trials. Now, how this works needs some explanation. Let's first establish the sanctifying value of trials. A few well-known verses will help us here. You can go to James chapter 1. Here in Hebrews, just turn to the right. James chapter 1. Trust you know, well-known. James 1, 2 through 4, which says, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and that endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Bible never says trials are good, per se, or joyous in themselves, but we are told to count them all joy. Why? Because they're doing something good for us. They have an intended good result. They're meant to test our faith in order to prove our faith. And the proof of our faith has its own result, namely endurance. And endurance is what you need to finish your race of faith, to to assure you will finish your race of faith. What James says here is similar to Peter. I'll just read this for the sake of time. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, another Familiar passage on God's purpose in trials. First Peter 1 6, speaking of their suffering, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God has no intention of destroying our faith for his children. Just the opposite. He's working in their lives to strengthen their faith, to refine and make stronger their faith because he wants to use them and they need some strength. You you probably know how how steel is made. Steel is, is just almost entirely iron ore with the carbon removed. And that requires the iron to be superheated talking 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit. doesn't sound so fun for the iron. But as the carbon and impurities are removed, what comes out on the other side is much stronger iron turned into now steel. Much more useful as well when it's stronger. It can be used a lot. Pig iron, cast iron can become very brittle. But steel is, is quite hard. But that, this is not also too dissimilar from what God is doing with us. He wants to and aims to use us for his kingdom, his purposes, his design. And for much of that, we need some strength. We need strength of faith in our walk, in our worship, in our witness. Where does strength of faith come from? Well, quite often God uses the blast furnace of trials to refine us, to pass our faith through the furnace, that on the other side, you're much stronger. Your faith has been tested and proven. And again, by the example of experience, have you ever met a Christian who has suffered greatly? They've gone through some profound trial, but they didn't lose their faith. They persevered. And then when all the dust settled, they, they were noticeably different. They emerged, changed for the better. Their worship, walk, and witness all somehow became just a little more serious, more vigorous. I mean, biblical history and church history are filled with such accounts. It was no fun going through whatever trial it was, but they've come out on the side and can be profoundly used by the Lord. Indeed, those whom the Lord seems to use the most are those who have suffered the most. Because often that's just what it takes to bring about the type of faith that can move mountains, that can be used in worship, walk, and witness. Now, we have to say, trials don't automatically result in stronger faith or spiritual growth. Because I'm sure you've also known Christians or people who have identified as Christians who've gone through a serious trial, and it it did not seem to help them. 
did not seem to make their faith stronger, but weaker. It wore them down. They fell away. Some even denied the faith. Jesus himself warned us of such a thing in the parable of the soils, that some would be like the seed sown on rocky places who at first appear to be real, but as soon as affliction or persecution arises, they immediately fall away, he said. And that's why we have to add the caveat that, that trials only sanctify when viewed through the lens of faith. Only those who have true faith to begin with can be refined. And only those who trust and depend on God by faith will grow through trials. You have to draw near to the Lord in your trial. But then again, you know, we could say the same thing about the word prayer in the church, right? If your heart isn't in these things, if you're not really seeking the Lord and living by faith, then your Bible reading, your prayer time, your church attendance is also going to be ineffective. Faith And seeking the Lord must permeate all that we do. But with trials, again, when viewed with eyes of faith, God can greatly use them to shape you, to cut off sin, to produce holiness. And so practically speaking, I can't tell you to seek out trials. This fourth tributary of the Spirit's power is not one we swim in willingly. We're going to leave it up to the Lord's providence to dunk us in there. The Lord, he's the master gardener. He knows when it's time for us to be pruned. It's never said that's that's up for us to decide, nor would we really choose to do so. But as Jesus said, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. John 15, 2, the same passage on spiritual growth, abiding in Christ. There's a pruning involved. It's up to him, though. We will leave that to him. He knows what's good, what's best for us in his hidden will. It's painful. We will trust his hand when it comes. Along those lines, I can tell you how to respond when the trials come. That you might actually be built up by them and not torn down. When trials come, the right response is simply to dive deeper into the word prayer and the church. That's it. That's what you need to do if you're going to view trials through the lens of faith. It's going to turn you closer to the word prayer and the church. Trials usually represent loss. You've lost something precious. Health, money, relationships, a loved one. Loss is painful. Approached in unbelief, it will lead you to curse God. But approached in faith, though painful, it's still going to drive you closer as you realize you only have one treasure anyway, and it's Christ. He can't be taken away from you. By faith, you know God is still good. He cares for his children. He promises to somehow work it all for good to those who love him. So you don't turn away from him. You turn toward him more. And you do that through the word, prayer, and the church. You will read the Bible and meditate on the word like never before. You will pray and cry out to the Lord in prayer like never before. You will lean on and cherish your church body like never before. If you ever want to learn how to pray, how to read, how to be a church member, just pray for trials and you'll find out. But you've seen those who have gone through it and how the Lord actually draws them in to an inner circle of of a communion, of devotion. We've already discussed how the word, prayer, and the church They're really the three primary means of actively renewing our minds and accessing the Spirit's power to change us. They're the channels of growth God has given to us. Trials, I would say, doesn't really stand on its own as a fourth means as much as trials amplify the other three. When you suffer the right way by turning to the Lord and going deeper into the word, prayer, and the church, that's when you find your mind renewed and your thinking changed at just a a higher level. Just by leaps and bounds, your thinking changes, your worldview changes, your values change. Again, we talked about how the Spirit works on us, changing our definition of what is good and lovely and beautiful and desirable and right. And there's nothing like trials to, to instantly overnight change all that as you turn to the Lord. You know, most often I think the number one way sin and Satan deceives us and keeps us away from the things of the Lord is by distraction. 
It very well could be that the greater danger to our souls is not outright gross immorality, but the not so sinful passing pleasures of the world. I mean, we're on our pilgrimage to the celestial city, but Vanity Fair looks really fun. Maybe we should just stop, take a break, and rest for a while. Maybe we shouldn't be running so hard anyway. I mean, we'll get there when we get there. Let's kind of enjoy the ride a little bit. Let's enjoy what this world has to offer. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the the good things of the world and resting. But I'll say this. When you suffer, your taste buds for the things of the world grow dull. And trials have the effect of reminding you that, 1 John 2, 15 and following, this world is passing away and also its lusts. You get a healthy dose of vanity and realize, I think it's just better to get back on track to the celestial city. Let's just get it back in the race. It's, it's better there. There's just no lasting home here. There's nothing really for me here in the long run. I'd, I'd much rather just be with my Savior. At least I should pursue him. Sometimes, oftentimes, we need such reminders. It's good to rest, to enjoy the fruit of your labor. That's all fine. But, but don't delay long. And there's nothing like trials to get us back on track in seeking the Lord. There's nothing like trials to move you to run your race with endurance, fixing your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter, finisher of our faith. And just as Jesus endured and entered glory, so it's promised we too will as we fix our eyes on him. Now, speaking of fixing our eyes on Christ, As we wrap things up here, I want to add one more layer to this whole discussion on renewing our mind, being filled with the Spirit. One more layer to the whole thing. What did we learn about here? Sanctification, growth in godliness, winning the war against sin. It's a function of the Spirit's power. The Spirit is at work within us to reshape the desires of our heart. We have a part to play in that process. Again, we're like that water wheel designed to turn, to spin, to do work. But for that to happen, we must actively immerse ourselves in the river because that's the power source. We have to put ourselves in the path of the Spirit's power. What does that look like? That's what we've been learning of late. God has supplied us with means by which the Spirit leads us and to renew us. The word, prayer, the church are the primary means. Trials come along from time to time and amplify them. Okay, hopefully that's clear by now. Keeping in mind, we've said several times that the Bible, you know, reading the Bible, praying, going to church, that doesn't automatically sanctify a person. There is a right and wrong way to engage in these spiritual disciplines. Many people, they read the Bible, say a few prayers, sit in church, but they're not sanctified. They're not winning the war against sin. Why not? Well, what have we also said? It's not enough to just open your Bible, per se, but you must also open your hearts. Meaning, you have to engage in all of these disciplines with the heart of faith. You have to be seeking the Lord, not just going through some motions. Mindless Bible reading and prayer are of little value. Hey, you can go to church, you can warm a pew, you can sing a few praise songs, but if your heart isn't in it and what you're doing, all that activity, then it's, it's of little avail. It's important that you understand everything we're talking about. These are not just motions to go through, like go through motions, get, get an outcome. You must go through the motions of being saturated in the word, devoted to prayer, committed to church. These motions only renew you when they're driven by a heart that seeks the Lord, that the heart A heart of passion for the Lord must always be engaged here. So with that in mind, that thought right there, I want to add one more layer to that. One more layer to the right way to partake of these spiritual disciplines. For the word, prayer, and the church to be effective in renewing you, we've said your heart must be open, so to speak, right? We can also add that at the same time, your eyes must be fixed on Christ, Your eyes must be fixed on Christ. You must have a distinctive Christ-centeredness to all you do. Because scripture tells us actually the spirit uses our vision, our beholding 
of the glory of Christ to transform us. So we must never stop fixing our eyes on Christ. The very act of beholding his glory is what transforms us. I want you to see this in a special passage we've saved for the end. So go to 2 Corinthians 3.18. Take yourself back. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Go to the last verse, verse 18. Paul is making a contrast between Old Covenant, New Covenant realities. You can keep turning, but I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's an interesting, intriguing verse, right? He says, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now here, Paul again, is making a contrast with Old Covenant believers showing the superiority of the New Covenant. Back in verse 6, the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. Verse 8, he's showing the greater glory of the ministry of the Spirit. He pictures those outside this New Covenant salvation as being veiled. A veil lies over their heart, verse 15. He has primarily in mind unbelieving Jews, but it's true of any unbeliever. And when a person turns to the Lord, verse 16, he says, the veil is taken away. God, the spirit removes the veil at at the new birth. Then comes verse 18, which finishes the thought. And he says, what does he say? Now we all, all believers with faces, with hearts unveiled, we are what? He says, we are beholding the glory of the Lord as in a mirror. We're beholding the glory of the Lord. We're, We're fixing our gaze on the glory of Christ. It may not be a perfect picture. In the ancient world, they did not have perfect mirrors like we have. I think they're like backed by silver or some, something like that. They had just polished metal. It's the best you got was polished metal for a mirror. It gives you an image, but not a perfect image. And we, we can see and behold the glory of Christ. Not perfect, not till he returns. Will that be a perfect image? But we have a real image. We can truly behold him. We have eyes unveiled. By faith, we can see the glory of the one who's come into the world. As we do so, verse 18, as we behold his glory, verse 18 says, we are being transformed into the same image. Transformed, same word as Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Also here, as in Romans 12, 2, it's a passive verb again. We're not being told to transform ourselves. It says, as we do something, we are being transformed. Something is acting on us to transform us. This metamorphosis, that's behind this Greek word, this transformation. It's something that happens to us. We're being transformed by the Spirit into the same image, the image of Christ. The Spirit is changing our own reflection to match the one in the mirror, to match the Lord's glory, you might say. He says he does this from glory to glory, Meaning from one level of glory to the next, the spirit makes us increasingly resemble Christ. And then at the end, he says, just as from the Lord, the spirit, the translation is challenging there, but it most likely means just as from the spirit of the Lord. Meaning again, this transformation is a function of the Holy Spirit within us. But with all this, this one little verse, you might otherwise read right over because at first it's kind of confusing, but this special little verse really affirms like everything we've been learning. The Holy Spirit is at work within us to transform us into the image of Christ. We learned in Romans 12 too, he does that as we renew our minds. But do you see what's being added here to that equation in, in this one verse? More specifically, the means by which the Spirit uh, transforms us is beholding the glory of Christ. That, that's what we need to fix our eyes, our minds on as we are seeking to renew our minds. Beholding the glory of Christ. That's how we are transformed. It's all about beholding the glory of the Lord. Real quick, look at chapter 4. Later, Paul says this, speaking of seeing the glory of Christ. Verse 4, verse 6, 2 Corinthians 4. Even verse 3, you know, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Speaking of unbelievers, verse 4, he says, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, 
so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They can't see him. To them, the word of the cross is foolishness. Their eyes, their hearts, they're still veiled. Preach the gospel, it's of no effect because the evil one has blinded their hearts, their minds, their eyes. So they can't see the glory of Christ. We preach Christ to them. He he seems so glorious to us, to them. Pearls before swine, they don't care. But God changes that, verse 6. We can just read verse 5. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And what this is telling us is that salvation comes to us when our eyes are open to the glory of Christ. This is regeneration, the Spirit's work. When the gospel is preached, Christ is offered, the Spirit works to open the eyes of our heart, to unveil us where we finally see he's worth it. He's worthy. He is the pearl of great price. I need to sell everything and just get that. And and that turns into faith. But do you see how it's all centered on beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. Verse 4, the glory of Christ. Verse 6, the glory of God in the face of Christ. Our salvation began when our eyes were opened to the glory of Christ, right? You get that? Well, verse 18 back in chapter 3 is saying our salvation continues as we further behold the glory of Christ, meaning our sanctification. Our sanctification also comes by sight of the same glory, by increasing sight of the same glory of Christ. Just as Moses beheld the glory of God and his face shone, so we shine all the more when we behold the glory of Christ. What you need to get here is just the power and the importance of Christ, beholding him, seeing his glory. And before salvation, we were blind to the glory of God in the face of Christ. At salvation, our hearts were unveiled. Our eyes were opened to see him. We treasure him, but our vision's not perfect. It's still coming into focus. We're still trying to get closer to that mirror to see the reflection. We often have double vision because with one eye, we're looking to Christ. With another eye, we're still looking to the things of the world. So our vision is still a little bit blurry. But the point is, the more we fix our eyes on Christ alone, the more we will be transformed into his image. Just how Christ-centered is your thinking. The Apostle Paul writes this. The Apostle Paul understood this. That's how he was able to say and mean in Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Christ really was his heart's treasure. He found in Christ, this, this is the pearl of great price. This is the treasure hidden in a field. He's worth everything. It's worth losing everything just to gain Christ. Because if you have Christ, you have everything that matters. Nothing else carries value when you gain Christ. The more you can say that and believe that, and I might say experience that in your heart of hearts, but the more you will be sanctified. When you know and treasure Christ above all, the passing pleasures of the world lose their luster. The things of this world grow strangely dim. Your desire for this world decays. And you find yourself, you just want more of Christ. Remember, we learned our deeds are driven by our desires, right? So what do you think is going to happen when a person comes to just passionately desire Christ? That desire is going to probably lead to a pretty Christ-like life. Seeing the glory of Christ began our salvation at justification. Seeing the glory of Christ continues our salvation in sanctification. And seeing the glory of Christ finishes our salvation at glorification. Let me just read, because we're almost out of time. 1 John 3, 2 through 3. Another really intriguing verse, but listen. 1 John 3, 2 through 3. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, but it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. 
And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There's a bit of mystery in that verse. We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. What does that mean? Clearly, there's some connection between the sight, the full sight of the glorified Christ and our own glorification. How else can we take that as just the completion of the work the Spirit started within us? That one day we will see the Christ in all of his unveiled glory. And on that day, the Spirit's work of transforming us into his image will be complete. Practically now, what does all this mean for winning the war against sin? It just means you need to be daily Christ-centered. You need to fix your eyes on Christ in all you do. More specifically, as, as you're partaking in these means of grace, these means of renewing your mind, you have an eye to Christ in all of them. You're seeking Christ's glory in all of them. Your Bible reading, your prayer time, your church fellowship are distinctively Christ-centered. As you read the Bible, you're not, not just going through a checklist and reading words on the page. You are letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you, and you're, you're seeking and seeing your Savior in the Word. The whole Old Testament points forward to him. The whole New Testament points back to him. You're seeking to behold his glory and his Word. As you pray, you're seeking him as well. You're crying out to him as your great high priest, your advocate, your intercessor. You're communing with him. You're abiding in him. As you fellowship in the church, you are seeing Christ, in a sense, embodied in others, and vice versa. You're emulating Christ. You're ministering Christ to those around you. And as you suffer trials, well, that's when you get to partake in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, Philippians 3.10. You get to know in a unique way your Savior who suffered first and greater for you. But practically then, you must seek Christ in all that you do. Only when you you come to really treasure him more than anything else will the lusts of your flesh lose their power. Because nothing can actually compete with his glory. What this world offers, what the devil tempts you with, what your own flesh wants. They're like little fireflies next to the sun. And when you actually see the sun, those lights just go away. In him is deep true, lasting fulfillment for your soul. The only question is, have you actually seen him? Are you seeing him? Are you beholding his glory? And the second we move away from the mirror, we forget the picture. We need to be looking at that mirror all the time. Make this your aim as you immerse yourselves in all the resources God has given you for your growth. Pray like Moses said to the Lord, show me your glory and the Lord will answer your prayer as you avail yourself of the word, prayer, the church, as you suffer all with an eye to Christ. Our time is up again. I had intended to finish in six lessons, not anticipating splitting up this last part on the four means of renewing our minds into two sessions. There are a few more subjects I wanted to cover in this study on winning the war against sin. Primarily, how do you deal with defeat when you stumble? And how do you set up defense? And I still want to talk about that. So we will come back next week for a truly final bonus session for all who are available. I'll be here. I mean, I'm not sure if you'll be here, but I'll be here. So we will actually wrap things up in one more week. But I want to leave you, leave you with one more special verse that I think perfectly encapsulates what we've learned and what should be in our minds at all time. A special one, Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let's live that out. Let's pray. And Father God and Son, Christ Jesus, we exalt you this evening as we recall what you've done for us. That the Son of God has loved us and given himself up for us. That we might know him. That we might see his glory. We're not worthy of this glory. We are only worthy to be cast away from the glory of God in the face of Christ forever. And that's the real terror of hell. 
to be apart from your goodness, your love, and your great, greater glory. But only in your mercy and in your love and in your glory did you intend and design for us to, to be reconciled, for our sins to be put away, past, present, and future, and for us to be brought near through the blood of Christ. We thank you for our Savior who opens up that veil by which we can draw near in full assurance of faith, but that we can see him. Lord, equip us with all the truth we've been learning over all these weeks. Now is the time for all of us to put them into practice. You've given us everything we need for growth. We we can't blame you. Yet the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. We, We struggle. Just move us, work in us by the spirit, motivate us to to do what you've called us to do, to take seriously. Now I pray with, with knowledge in tow, with, with understanding, uh, to seek Christ in his word, to cry out to the Savior in prayer, to fellowship with the saints, emulating Christ, to suffer for his name's sake, and then being renewed therein. Don't let all of this teaching fall on deaf ears, my own included, and just give us vision of Christ and a heart that wants and pursues him. And the rest will take care of itself. You've made us like the plant to just grow. We will grow. We will bear fruit as the spirit works within us. May we take advantage of all the the power you've richly supplied to us. We exalt you. We thank you. And uh, help us now to live Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.